0: hello you're listening to life's lottery a podcast from the Paul ramsey foundation produced on gadigal country my name is leela smith and i'm your guest host for this week's episode i'd like to acknowledge the gadigal people the traditional owners of this country and pay my respects to their elders past and present Our focus this time is on First Nations kids. What do they need to thrive and reach their full potential? I'm a Wiradjuri woman working to bring better outcomes. My background is in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander health and education. As the CEO of Aurora Education Foundation, we've got exciting plans to foster better education outcomes for young Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. By many measures, our young people are not doing as well as their non-Indigenous peers. And we need to acknowledge that. But I also want to move the conversation along. We need to. What are our strengths? What's making a difference? And what's working for our kids? I'm joined by a couple of inspirational colleagues who are also turning up, speaking out, and showing the way. Kirsten Gray is a Yawailari and Muriwari woman. She describes herself as a mother, a lawyer, and someone who grew up in care, Kirsten has a unique perspective on many of the issues that still dominate the national conversation for Indigenous kids. Also at the mic is Tim Goodwin, a UN man. Tim is a barrister and an Indigenous campaigner. He also sits around many tables talking about making change. Welcome to you both. We've got a lot of stories about what drives us. And the role and importance of education is part of all of our stories. So I thought we'd start there. Kirsten,
1: to you first. How is education part of your story? Thanks, Leela. Uh, For me, education was uh, a lifeline, really, as a child that grew up in, in care. And we know that there are many First Nations children growing up in that system across the country. I come from a line of people in my family who've been involved in various types of Care systems through my own story and then my, my mother and her grandmother. So we have an intergenerational line there in terms of our involvement with child welfare systems. And for me, education was a place where I could be myself and challenge myself. And it was really pivotal to where you know to me being where I am today. If, if it wasn't for school, I, I definitely would not have had the opportunities that I have and the support system that I now have around myself literally was the lifeline and I remember the week before the HSC starting I was actually had my last move in care I I just thought I just want to get through these exams I've studied so hard and by some miracle (laughs) getting into uni into doing law but I just knew that I had to hold out for that extra week even though there was that uncertainty and instability in the background Because at that point, I'd had about 10 placements in my last two years of school, which is a common thing, placement breakdown. I just knew education was the way out for me.
0: Tim, you had a similar drive to finish school and go on to further study. Where did that come from?
1: Yeah, hi, Leela
2: and hi, Kirsten. Having my grandparents on both sides, my father's a white Australian, my mum is a Yuin and Wiradjuri woman pushing the importance of education. For us as children and my parents, doing the same was something that was really important because they didn't get those opportunities to finish school and left at 12 or 13 or 14. And the education that they got was less than ideal in any event, particularly for the Aboriginal side of my family in terms of not only a poor education, but an education that disrupted... And forced them to disassociate from their culture. So it was an education that went backwards. If anything, it was the opposite of an education. And so for them, it was really important that I use the opportunities given to me by their fight and their struggle to change the education systems. When I was born, my mum was actually participating in a program to get Aboriginal people and Torres Strait Islanders into the tertiary education system. Mum started her degree, never finished her bachelor's, but was inspired by that to continue on and have a career working for Aboriginal hostels for a very long time. And being surrounded by those role models who really pushed you to get a good education was so important for me.
0: Kirsten, you talk about kids in care today and the impacts of low expectations How do we change that?
1: I think we are plagued by a lot of the deficit discourse in Indigenous affairs, whether we're talking about education, health, whatever it is. And those things, as we know, are deeply tied to our colonial past and the trauma that lies in community. But I was just so stubborn in my own experience. I wanted to break that mould. And I think there are so many positive examples. Our education systems need to see the the potential in young people. Um, and not just those systems, but I suppose all of the systems that our children interact with. There is that prominent belief that you're not going to amount to anything. And I think I think that's the the reasoning behind a lot of the successful First Nations education programs that we see, because we want to counteract that, because our people have fought hard for the right for education and we know the compounding effect that culture of low expectation can have. Because it then also stops that window of opportunity for, for young people. If we just expect that they're not going to amount to anything or that success has to look a particular way, we don't then give them additional opportunities and we don't invest in young people. And I think young people then internalise those feelings. We know that our culture is such a protective factor and that when our families and our children have their identity recognised and reflected back to them and invested in, that the outcomes are in fact better. So I think a lot of those systems need that investment and that attitudinal change because I think those systems then carry those narratives out into the media, not just the classroom but into the media as well and society then perpetuates a lot of that as well.
0: It was also really clear the link between education and how quickly that flows into policy, history, health, wellbeing, trauma... It's so inherently linked, seeing education as connected to all of those lenses, as you say. Tim, how have you seen the connection between education and health
2: and wellbeing in your work? I think there's an important correlation between having a good education and health and wellbeing outcomes and feeling, particularly for First Nations kids, culturally safe in that education. It's really an important first step in terms of thinking about healthy child development. Um, That's part of the reason why, for example, preschool education is so important. And so by participating in an education system that promotes and values their own cultural background, they're having a holistic education that ensures that they're not only learning how to read and write, but being invested with a positive sense of identity and culture that's really important. An organisation I was involved in, the Australian Research Alliance for Children and Youth, have a program called The Nest, which is an evidence-based framework for national child and youth wellbeing. And there's six particular wellbeing domains around being loved and safe, having material basics, being healthy, learning participating and a positive sense of identity and culture and all those things really need to work together. We know based on evidence for a child and a young person to be really healthy and to develop really well. The key for First Nations kids is that sense of the positivity of their own culture, of growing up in culture. There's a reason why we survived on this landscape for 60,000 years in scientific terms, and since time immemorial, in our own scientific terms. There's a reason why we've been able to do that, and that's because of that intergenerational strength that has passed down. We just need to continue that in new and modern ways. <laughs>
0: you're listening to the sounds of nyalang mort lullabies from home it means our family in noongar the indigenous language of the southwest of western australia More than 60 original songs have been written and recorded in Noongar language by Noongar Families and the Community Arts Network. The Lullabies program was developed six years ago with the dream of building a future where all Noongar children grow up being lulled to sleep with songs sung in their traditional language. Noongar musicians Phil Bartlett and Charmaine Counselor spoke to us, along with Charmaine's niece, Mika Bennell.
3: It's called the Lullabies Project, and it's, it's Noongar language. A whole group of people come along, and they write, they learn language. It's a part of healing. And I know that from, from myself, just doing it and being being a facilitator in this, it's actually been a good journey for myself. It's an opportunity for, the, for people that have been through a lot in life. What happens is, is a lot of people keep that stuff inside, and it stays inside. For the rest of their lives but this is a platform where you're actually being able to release this trauma in a way that you get to write about it with other people it's very personal and it's coming from within your heart within your soul and you then you get to write it out record it with professional musicians and then put it out there into the world and then you get to sing it and that's a release, you've released that from within yourself, of trauma.
4: Yeah, that's right Phil, because our people were forbidden to speak their language and there was policies put in place many years ago that prevented our people from practicing our culture, our dances and particularly passing on the language to the next generation. And the language held stories, it held stories on country, it gave us our identity.
0: about those strengths and the factors that help Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander kids thrive, we know that early exposure to the justice system is a red flag for our kids. And Kirsten, what are your thoughts on how culture can play a role in breaking these kinds of intergenerational cycles?
1: First Nations people, many of us have family members who've been incarcerated. Myself, my, my mother spent a lot of time being incarcerated, as did my dad. And I think a lot of Children in the care system, particularly, have that story as a part of their family narrative. And there's a particular pathway for kids in care who get entangled in the justice system. And that's because of a lack of investment in those families and in our culture more generally. So we know from all the commissions of inquiry that this nation has done since day dot that incarceration has been a real challenge facing our mob because fundamentally there is the lack of investment. addressing structural advantage and and the resulting trauma. I think as as Tim was saying, you know, culture is a protective factor. I think culture can't be viewed in isolation from families and communities. So for me as a young person, culture was about being with family. It was about spending that time feeling like I was connected, that I felt strong in my place as a First Nations woman. And it took many years, uh, even though I was placed with my non-Indigenous family, I think critically, I still did not know who I was as, a, as an Aboriginal person. I did not have those basic connections. And I think I've seen that that could have taken many paths and certainly I know many young people who are caught up, uh, who are now either young adults or entering the justice system, having had that care background because they feel really disconnected and they haven't had those fundamentals being met. And the system has made a call about, for whatever reason, dismantling their family And that that has had a resulting impact on their culture and their sense of cultural identity, but also where they draw their family and cultural connections from. And I think that's a fundamental part of the equation when we're talking about our significant interacting with the criminal justice system. Time and time again, we have talked about the investment in First Nations solutions and self-determination and and early intervention with things like the culture of low expectations and the rite of passage for our people going into jails and youth detention centres. I feel like this deficit discourse just means that we as a society are so desensitised to these conversations and even the solutions that have been proposed time and time and time again. As former Commissioner Andrew Jackamos used to say, particularly about um, young people, culture is not a perk, it's a lifeline. And I think um, that's how our systems need to view that when we're trying to tackle issues around why our young people are entering the justice system or why they're leaving school and invest in those families because that means you're investing in the cultural identity of that young person and I think that's going to set them up to be in a much better place when they're tackling challenges in their lives. It's not rocket science. I think we've been saying the same things for a very long time.
0: I think that's a really good point. If we're going to be talking about putting Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander kids at the centre of policy, that means putting Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander families at the centre of policies and recognising the role that the system currently plays and has played for a long time around dismantling families.
4: I want to talk a little bit about one song that really, really was an inspiration to me was my mum. Her mother was taken away, a member of Stolen Generation and she grew up in... uh, more of a settlement, with but they call it Magamba now, when they was taking kids away from the mission. But my mum grew up with her mum singing a song. It was a little lullaby, and we didn't know that this song existed until she attended these workshops. And I said, Mum, where you got that song from? She said, oh, your Nana used to sing it to me when I was a little girl. And she only could remember parts of it. And so what we did was she wrote a little verse, extra verse on the end of this song, and now we call it Ruby's Lullaby, and my grandmother's called Ruby. So there was some language that was still mulling around in my mum's head since she was 15. And so it was just a blessing for me to revive that old song. And so that's, you know handing down to four through four generations when you think about it.
0: Tim, this will be at the front of your mind in Victoria, there with the first formal truth and reconciliation process in this country, which is currently underway with the Yurok Justice Commission beginning hearings. At its core, it's about listening to testimonies and stories about the impact of colonisation. Just how important is that to our young people?
2: Yeah, it's extremely important for a number of reasons, but I think the two most important reasons are as a matter of history and a matter of healing. So a matter of history to ensure that our young people understand the history of what their ancestors and elders have been through because of colonisation. And there are two ways to frame that. There is the devastating effect of history of dispossession of land, of, of massacres, of moving people off country, of taking children away, of undermining uh, gender relationships, of all those types of things that have happened in terms of the power of our culture and the desire to access our resources that we lived in harmony with for so long that needs to be told and understood not only by the wider community but our own community. But there's a flip side to that. There's the power of our survival, the power of our resistance, the power of our capacity to mobilise, to organise, to fight for social justice, to march, to have our voices be heard, to be stubborn, like Kirsten said. You know, the the power of First Nations stubbornness is a wonderful thing and that provides a platform for healing. One of the people that we've been meeting with this week on Country said really powerfully that we can't heal the country until we heal our people and... He was not only talking about the country as in the land in terms of what's happening to our climate, but also our nation until we heal the people in it. And that includes not only um, First Nations people, but the whole community to reckon with these stories to like Tony McAvoy, the senior council an Aboriginal man said at the ceremonial opening to look into the mirror and see the truth reflected back at all of us as Australians and then to come to terms with not only the beauty but the lines and the cracks and the ageing in that face of the nation because then we can move on truly healed.
4: My niece there, Mika, Mika Bennell. I'm Mika. I'm 15. (laughs) Mika um, recorded her song in 2018
2: with her
4: nana, Nana Phyllis. I was just talking to Nana Phyllis today and she just told me to remind Mika that when they first wrote that little song about her dad, she was four years old. And whenever um, Nana, uh, Nana Phyllis, she sings like a variety of songs in language for me and everything like that, it feels a little bit overwhelming a lot, but it also feels really like, I don't know how to describe it, but really nice inside and everything. And it makes me feel like I do have something to be proud about. I do have Something that is me and that I own, and everything like that.
0: Kirsten, what's your view? Can something like a truth telling process influence some of the realities that First Nations kids face?
1: Yeah, I think truth-telling is a really important process and I'm so excited that the York Justice Commission has been starting. Our country really does need a reckoning. We've understood in the broader context of treaties and other national points of discussion that our people have been fighting about for a long time or advocating for. We realise that we sort of have to take a state-by-state approach to that. But in terms of truth-telling for young people, I assume that that commission will ensure that First Nations or Koori young people have a particular seat at that table to ensure that their voices are heard and I think we do have examples of our young people stepping up and talking truth to power and speaking about their experiences and sometimes to their detriment people like Dylan Voller he did that in the context of the Don Dale inquiry and shone a light on the horrible experiences that he and his fellow young people were experiencing in within that system but I think with these truth-telling processes whilst they're important they also need to come with the political will to actually address the underlying issues. Part of the challenge with those inquiries is people give so much of themselves, and then, and it's not the fault of the inquiries themselves because they're, they're important processes to expose those fault lines, but they don't control the means of responding to them. And I think our people are one of the most consulted groups of people on the planet, and have that fatigue, and I think there's that real tiredness even amongst our young people about the ongoing processes of inquiry without change but having said that there needs to probably be more effort for the voices of our first nations young people to be elevated I think unfortunately we see a lot of the experiences of young people through the prism of media or social media or through you know really tragic interactions with our justice systems and we've got too many recent examples to name and that that can be quite triggering. I think there definitely needs to be more opportunities for young people to share their stories. And I think there's a lot of fire in the belly. They're really clever. They're really, you know, savvy and they want to see change and they want to be at the table. But I think they understand that it needs to be a double pronged approach. It can't just be sharing their insights for the sake of it with rehashing trauma and exposing old wounds without necessarily having a way to address what they're fundamentally hoping to achieve change in.
4: We're actually allowing the little ones now to be able to embrace those languages. I know that my niece will never experience the loss of language. So we've changed the story that a little kid will not go without not knowing a Noongar word. And what's happening down in the southwest, in particular, we've... I've been approached to work with doctors and nurses of the local hospital here to actually create a little language song uh, to sing to children when they go to hospital, you know, just to settle them down and get them to hear their language. And it's just another way of allowing a child to be safe in that type of an environment.
3: And believe it or not, the schools over here are actually speaking Noongar language better than the adults. You know how some kids, they know they're they're great at technology than the adults are? Well, the kids are, it's kind of a bit the same. Kids are actually really good with Noongar language and the adults are sort of just still trying to get there.
4: It is a joy to see little ones embrace the language and to sing it, and, and there's no effort. They just don't question, they just like little sponges soak it up. And these songs can last forever. So it can be a little legacy for our families.
3: That's one of the best feelings, knowing that when you do something, when you give something, sometimes we might look for, for a bit of fame or the money and all those kind of things, but none of that really means nothing watch something grow into something really beautiful is there's no better feeling than that I reckon and that's where language and the lullabies and what we're doing here is it's it's really is groundbreaking
0: let's talk about good policy and good policy development and processes I want to ask you both for a good example of policy development and change that's flowed from it
2: Tim I'm going to go to you first I might cheat and say two. One that really kicked off recently and another that needs to kick off but has some local wins. The first one is really about Indigenous language in schools. It's just really impressive to see around the country the revitalisation of Indigenous language and the teaching of Indigenous language in preschools and primary schools in particular so that both First Nations and non-First Nations children are being exposed to the power of language, the power of culture, the power of of an ancientness that inhabits this land and gives them access to tools by which they can describe the land in its true form. And you see that having such a flow-on effect in various other areas, you've got... Kids proud of their own culture and being able to speak language. You've got the revitalization of language itself. You know, there's, I've got on my phone the app for Wiradjuri that Dr. Stan Grant has been working on with university allies for so long that I can now access my mother's language, my mother's mother's language, in a way that is really heartening and powerful and just hearing the stories of so many friends, both Aboriginal, non-Aboriginal, whose kids are just going to primary school and bringing home language to their parents in a way that their parents never had access to that, that there are books in language and everywhere, not only in the stereotypical areas that people think real and authentic Aboriginality comes from. So I think that that's really inspiring and I think is contributing to the change of place names that we're seeing in this country. And the second one that I think is showing promise that I hope really gets picked up, and this goes back to Kirsten's discussions around the justice system, is really about justice reinvestment. And there have been some really good programs in Burke in Cowra, showing really great promise to divert resources from locking kids and adults up to actually investing in programs that ensure that those people are safe and feeling on track so that they can participate in life to their full potential. And I think that that's really important because it's community-led and driven as well. And I think that that's something that's really important because locking people up not only does it not work in terms of rehabilitating young people or adults, it's actually really expensive. And so why wouldn't it be better to reinvest that money into programs that ensure that the reasons why people are exhibiting antisocial behaviour are actually dealt with in a way that means that those people will reach their full potential because you do better as a society and you save a lot of money.
0: Kirsten, you spoke before about consultation fatigue. People are tired of giving their views if they're not really being heard. Where do you see good consultation and processes delivering a better way of doing things?
1: Good consultation, look, I think think it's an age-old question and I think it gets thrown around a lot by government, uh, policymakers, bureaucrats and um, NGOs and everyone in between when they're interacting with First Nations people and when they have a an interest um in in working with us whether through funding or programs or what have you i mean i think there's a distinction between consultation and self-determination a lot of the time we see those things conflated to the detriment of first nations people so we tend to water down what that right means and and minimize it to things such as ticker box consultation or participation and I think good consultation really is about recognizing our inherent rights but it's also about ensuring that we lead processes that our processes are adequately resourced and for the long term in terms of our own objectives and that we're involved in, in every step of the process so not asked to come and give our two cents you know the week of NADOC week or the minute before some kind of policy that's going to affect our land or cultural resources is going to hit the ground. But it actually happens well before that time. And in fact, we're also involved in the aftermath in terms of evaluating the success or otherwise of those policies. Rarely do we see good consultation. We often find that First Nations peoples are just slotted in, in into whatever um, external time frames that meet the needs of the non, often non-Indigenous provider or government and um, often not around our own timeframes and community priorities. And so I think uh, it needs to be a whole of community conversation if it's concerning a particular location or group of peoples. And it needs to be done in good faith as well and in a way that's not trying to cherry-pick particular views to get a particular outcome um, and also adhere to. You know, I think, I think we, we get scared in this country in terms of, a right of veto and if, if we actually consult with people and they actually give you, don't give you the answer that you want. I think we see that a bit too and I think we don't have enough time here to address that. But before, during and well after I think is sort of the core tenets of that.
0: Finally, can I ask you both what does success
2: look like? Tim, to you first. Success looks like First Nations people being able to to meet their aspirations free from arbitrary barriers put around them, whether that be racism, a lack of respect for culture and identity, for systems being in place that have held down First Nations people for hundreds of years. And for our communities, it's the capacity to properly self-determine and step into our own ancient power in order to run those communities in a way that meets their communal aspirations, tied both to a culture of having done so for tens of thousands of years but also finds life in a modern-day expression that understands the reality of our, of our national circumstances and the history of colonisation but brings those two things together in a way that means that it's Aboriginal people deciding issues for their own community and the futures of their own community. That's really what I I ultimately see success about. It's not any one picture. It's multiple pictures that have been painted by communities themselves.
0: And Kirsten, your
1: thoughts? Yeah, I really like what Tim was just sharing there about the power of the collective and First Nations peoples being in control of their own their own lives and their own futures. And I think for too long the story of this country has been the opposite, it has been governments and other bodies interfering in the lives of First Nations peoples, often not for their own benefit. And I think success in a collective sense is about the breadth and diversity of our beautiful cultures, determining our own futures, determining our own priorities with minimal interference, but with acknowledgement of the investment that is required to address some of those past stains on the record of this country, but also in the potential of First Nations futures. And I think from an individual perspective, and we're not really individualistic in that sense, we are really a peoples that are community minded. But I think if we're talking about education, I often have this thought as well, just drawing on my own story, that's going to look different for every person. And I know from my own siblings, you know, success for them isn't going to university. It's about being happy and feeling strong in their identity and having access to the right supports for them that are going to work for their own needs. Being outside looking in, I'd love for non-Indigenous Australians to see the wealth of resilience and strength That lies in our communities. We are such an incredibly talented group of people. And not only have we survived, but we thrive. And there's so much of that that happening every day. And it looks different for everyone. And I hope that we can start to celebrate those differences and uh, the power of that excellence a little bit more.
0: You've been listening to Life's Lottery, Backing Kids, from the Paul Ramsey Foundation and UTS Impact Studios. I'm Leela Smith from the Aurora Education Foundation. Thanks to my fellow guests, Kirsten Gray and Tim Goodwin, for their ideas and their passion for change. You can find out more about all of us at lifeslottery.com.au. Please keep your feedback and comments coming. Next week, regular hosts Jenny Whalen and Glyn Davis will be back at the mic to ask how children are faring internationally. After decades of cooperation, why are powerful and wealthy international bodies still failing to deliver for all children? They'll also explore the glimmers of hope with guest Kevin Watkins, who's been part of and observed these debates for decades. I'll leave you now with more of the sounds of Nyalain Mort, Lullabies from Home.
2: I've been introduced in partnership with UTS Impact Studios.
4: I've
2: just got a good to of
4: the staff and the Joe Roman
2: men. I've been a producer, Nicole Kirby. Researcher, writer, Jackie May. <laughs> Jamie Milson. Who's that? That That's you.